We have this uh, subconscious equation. Effort equals reward. But often that reward is external. Like if you're putting an effort and you're not getting rewards, you've got one of two options. You can stop putting an effort or you redefine reward. Hello, it's Andrew May and welcome to another edition of Performance Intelligence, the podcast about all things human performance. Today is around mental skills. We've got Aaron Walsh in the studio, or Walshy, as he's affectionately known. Aaron has worked with pretty well every team in New Zealand and a lot of teams around the world. He's the mental skills coach of the Chiefs in Super Rugby. He's worked with the New Zealand women's football and hockey teams. With the football team, he's been to the Olympics and World Cup. He works with major league baseball players. He worked as the mental skills coach for the Warriors in the NRL. He consults to the Harlequins in the UK. And he's working with multiple sports. Every time I talk to him, he's working with a different sport, a different person. So when I thought about the mental skills, Walshy, you were the person. I was going to have a joke. That was when I thought about who is the person I know on the science of mental skills. I went to them. They're busy. I've got Walshy. Not a bad option, eh? <laughs> Lovely to have you in the studio. We could talk about lots of things, and we do. So I thought I'd frame this. We'll call this planned spontaneity. So a rough structure, number one. I'd love your definition of mental skills to the evolution from deficit to skills. I learned that phrase from you. Three, the thing about a podcast is you often get the opportunity to work with people you know and respect. And you know, I really look up to what you do, but I don't know much about you in your life. So I'm going to pull on that thread and find out about Walshy. From probably the, deliberate. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and, and you've told me I can do that. But yep. I, I want to find out about the country guy who's now working with global athletes and the evolution on that. Four, how does this apply to non-athletes? Because a lot of people that listen to this podcast, they're high performers, but it's not in sport. And five is what we call the PQ, the Performance Intelligence Baker's Dozen. But let's start with number one, define mental skills for me. I think to define mental skills, I just want to step back and define performance because I think we'll get a much better understanding of it. So my definition of performance is capability minus interference. And so that we think that might just necessarily apply to the physical side of performance or someone's technical or skill, you know, are related around performance, whether you're in an office and you need to be highly skilled at something or whether you're on a sports field and you have to be highly skilled, then, you know, to develop your performance, you're always staring at, okay, do I need to be working on my capability here? Like increasing my skill base or increasing my physical base or increasing the way I think. And I think, you know, like for young athletes, that's probably what we do a lot of. But I think as you get higher and higher up, like I think of some of the guys I'm working with, we're basically in that reducing interference as much as we possibly can because their capabilities are already high. So going back to mental skills, I think mental skills is, I think it's the, 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 the key thing that enables you to bridge that gap between what you're capable of and what you actually deliver. So mm -hmm. if I were to ask people, which I do all the time for my job, is – do you ever feel like you can't translate potential into performance? So many people will say, yeah. yeah. Well, let's pause on yeah. that. For people listening to this, flip that question. So if you're driving along, walking along, because we always multitask when we podcast, do you ever feel like you don't hit your performance potential or do you ever feel like you don't bring your best self? Absolutely. I think everyone yeah, would say yeah. that. I feel that every day. Like there's elements where I think – I'm like, I think I could have done that better or I could, you know, I wasn't quite where I, I needed to be. But nine times out of 10 now, for me, it doesn't have anything to do with my skill. Mm -hmm. Like my skill 
is always developing and hopefully I'm getting better. But my skill is my skill. Like I've got the basics of what I do down pretty well. So if I don't deliver, it's normally a mindset thing. It's normally a, an inability to, say, read a moment or an inability to access what clarity when I needed to or an inability to be adaptable or an inability to not manage the pressure that is associated with something I was doing. So you, you mentioned it's a mindset thing and there has been a real evolution of mental skills. Uh, I know when I was an athlete, there was no such thing as a mental skills coach. And I'm going back 20 plus years, mate. If you weren't performing, if you weren't handling pressure, you'd see a sports psychologist to help you with your problems. Then we started looking at that third tier. You know, you've got your technical and tactical. So if you're not good at kicking, throwing, tackling, don't play rugby. But then you had the second iteration, which was strength and conditioning coach, which I worked at for a number of years. It's like the third tier on that is now mental skills. But it's really evolved the last 10 or 15 years. And it's the word that I first heard you talk about. It's come from a deficit model, what's wrong, to a skills model. Do you want to sort of fill in the gaps, what's happened over the last- I think you you know at the start that it's really important to define, like the mental skills isn't a silver bullet. Like thinking well isn't a silver bullet. Well, the way I say to athletes, you can't outthink a poor body or an incomplete skill set. Like, there's no substitute. Like, I say, like, you know, mental skills isn't going to increase your capability. It's just going to allow you to maximize it. And I think that's one 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 way of looking at it. So there's I'm no sure you get that. asked this all yeah. the time, and I do, and I yeah. I'll defer to you. <laughs> what percentage? Like, what percentage of the makeup with an athlete? Like, depending on the um, sport. So if I think of a sport like rugby, I would probably say 60% is physical. You know, like if you can't physically compete, don't bother coming. 20% I reckon is in that, that skill slash tactical understanding. And I reckon only 10, 20% is mental. Okay, give me another sport that's different percentage makeup. I would probably say golf would be a really interesting one. Like you've got to have a good golf swing, but once you've got a good golf swing, and I think goes back to the nature of the sport. So I think we've talked about this in the past, like sports where you have to initiate movement are much more difficult mentally when you're responding to movement. So I'll give you an example, like in rugby, everything's a responsive to what's in front of you. Same with rugby league. In rugby, we have two areas where you initiate movement. It's a line out throw and a goal kick. So where do you see the mental bailings occur? If we talk about yips in sports, normally around places where you have to initiate the movement because now there's room for thinking. You're not instinctive. You now have to consider, like, I've actually got space here. So that's why things like pre-shot routines or kicking routines or all the routines, all they do is enable you to access a process that distracts your thinking from the outcome. And so I think it's really important in life for us to do that. Like, that's why I'm process-driven is I know if I look at outcome, I can get overwhelmed. But if I can direct my focus towards activities, then I feel much safer in my ability to perform. So what do you think golf percentages what would the breakdown be for you in golf i reckon you know i mean you can't out think about golf swing but once you get to the top level like there's lots of pretty golf swings so i reckon it's probably around the 40 to 50 percent i'm a shit golfer i've run on this this will i know you play off scratch so you'll be appalled i've run on st andrews yeah i got kicked off i went there with a mate mario many years ago shout out to mario he went and played and i went for a run and i'm running along the beach you know, yeah. Chariots of Fire was in my head. I've run where they play the Australian. I've run where they have the Ryder Cup in, in Dublin. This is appalling to you, isn't it, that I went to these golf courses. So I'm a shit golfer. If you work with me on my swing, and then if you did mental skills training, could you get me to be a much better golfer? Or is it just I don't have the mechanics? 
I think I could maximise what you have. It could and become a good shit golf. <laughs> well, well, the thing is, if you like decided like I want to, I love the game and I want to get better, you go hire a, a swing coach and you hire a mind coach. I think your chances of getting better quicker are much higher because you're understanding how you learn, you're understanding how you process information, you're understanding what to focus on, mm-hmm. and especially when you're learning a game, like you think about any of us who are learning a new skill, the most overwhelming part is when you have to translate that skill into performance. So like, for example, if you think about a golfer, they might go to a lesson, get all this information. You might be out there having, you know, piano lessons, or you might be out there, you know, having um, cycling or surfing lessons. Now we put you in a comp. Do you want to access that information that you've been learning or do you want to trust? Right? So you can learn, 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 learn. And this is where the difference, I think, in the top level people is that they learn, 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 and then they can separate their learning, go into performing and nail stuff and not be encumbered by information. Let's put that into corporate speak because when you do mental skills, and you do, you work with some of New Zealand's biggest companies, similar to me, you've, you've learned your craft, you've honed your craft in sport, and you're now interpreting into the corporate world. So for someone listening to this who goes, well, I don't do a line out, I don't partner, you know, I don't swim 50 metres, for someone who's an executive or someone who's an emerging leader, one of the biggest strengths you can have is presenting, being articulate, being clear. A lot of people, when they do these surveys, like I'm yeah. a, I am love speaking, I have ever since school, so it's a bit foreign to my, hey, jazz hands. But when they ask people, what are you most afraid of? You know, people say that they're really afraid of public speaking, in some cases more than dying. That just shows an absolute amygdala hijack that stress response about public speaking. So as an executive, as an emerging leader, you have to present yeah, authentically. What would you do with someone listening to this who gets nerves? You mentioned before, yips, sporting language. When you need to show up in a performance moment, a lot of people can speak in a small crowd, but then they get into an elevated, it might be the boardroom, it might be a big conference, and they're feeling really nervous. Pick that up. It's a little bit like listening to you do some of your work recently. It's layered. So I can give you the mechanical skills, like focus on your preparation, be confident in your material. But the bigger question is, what are you scared of? That's the real question. Like, what are we scared of speaking in front of a room? We're scared of looking stupid, right? And we're scared of failing. We're scared of, because we equate that with rejection. And also we're putting a lens that's extrinsic. I can't help but think extrinsic, intrinsic, whereas N equals one for me. When I do a presentation, I enjoy it. I feel fulfilled. I feel like I'm connecting. I feel like I'm making a difference. Um, by the way, if people enjoy that as well, it's a bonus. Yeah. I think when I first started, what's he thinking? What's she thinking? What are they doing? And I just found I wasn't enjoying it. It put so much pressure on myself. There's a whole thing for all of us. And like, I think with rugby players, this is what we have to experience a lot with athletes. And I think the same in the corporate world is we have this uh, subconscious equation. Effort equals reward, Right. So, but often that reward is external. Like if you're putting an effort and you're not getting rewards, you've got one of two options. You can stop putting an effort or you redefine reward. And this is where this extrinsic intrinsic things comes alive, right? And so we have a phrase, you know, that I've worked with a lot of our athletes, particularly around those that might be younger in their career. Absolutely, think of some young execs out there, right? They're absolutely putting in the effort and they're not getting the rewards yet ex- externally. So you've got two options, stop putting in effort, redefine reward. So we have this phrase, we just call it the man in the mirror, which is what's your reward? Or at the end of, of Friday night, I want to put my stuff down at my door. I want to go into my washroom. I want to wash my hands. I want to look in the man in the mirror and be proud. 
So that redefines everything, right? Now, all of a sudden, like your motivational pathways for being excellent at what you do isn't revolving around the opinion of others, but revolves around the man in the mirror. And once that lands, you can't escape that person. I love that. When you've got a rugby player who is just there to be in the 15, and in New Zealand, it's all about being an all black, right? Because once you're an all black, forever after that, you are introduced as the all black. Oh, by the way, his name's Joel. How do you get buy-in with a young rugby player who goes, yeah, well, she blah, 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 blah. I just want to play and I just want to hit guys. We think that the young guys are easy to work with because if you're in a super rugby team and you're 19 or 20 years old, you're not going to be playing. You're, you're probably pretty low on the depth chart. So that means like you have to develop your professionalism and develop your craft without the opportunity of a lot of game time. I think of two or three players that I've worked with the last couple of years who are younger, they got all blacks in front of them. So they're not going to get the reward, if you want to use that term, of game time. Because if you're a player, what's your reward? It's game time. If you're an executive, what's your reward? It's in the when you're in the business, right? It's not just putting in all this effort, doing all this work and never getting a chance to shine. So it's easier with them because they will come to you out of frustration and desperation going, what's the point? At Somewhere along the line, they're going to come and go, why am I putting in all this effort and not getting any reward? I find that it's a player who's had a taste or they've been on the fringe, they've had a game or two and they're sitting there playing reserve or in NRL, we call it New South Wales Cup. They've had a taste, they're hungry. But getting that taste, it's challenging when you've got a high performer who's done this and they've got an unconscious competence as well. Yeah. And like you have, you know, like we might have a young flank and you've got Sam Kane, the All Black captain in front of you. You know going into a season, unless there's injuries, you're not going to get a hell of a lot of time. So I reckon it's a great challenge for young athletes. And I think it's also a great challenge for young professionals because there's always going to be someone ahead of you. And if your competition becomes with getting in their spot rather than becoming someone you're proud of, then I reckon it gets really messy. So when you can redefine that going, listen, I've got a goal at the end of the week. It's not to get the next promotion. It's not to get the next rise. That's lovely. Let's sit it there. But my goal is I want to be proud and I think that's become a real key message, I think, for a lot of our athletes, because they actually want to be proud of themselves. So Sarah from a bank contacts Walshie yeah. to help her with a pre-performance routine to present better. Talk me through that. How would you work with Sarah? You know me well enough to go like, I would always do, I have a model a little bit. Which Take is, us through the model. Yeah. So assess, prescribe and monitor. So if we go back to what you said earlier, like if mental skills are a skill, then why don't we treat it like one? So if you think, if you go and see a trainer for your body or you go see someone that's going to help you with a certain skill, like you want to learn the piano, like I'm terribly musically, but if I wanted to learn the piano, the first thing the piano teacher does or the first thing like you would know as a physical trainer, you have to assess your client. What's going on? What are you capable of? What you're not? Where's your skill level at? And I think that's always the first thing I would do. And then I would look at the low-hanging fruit initially. So... It might be, I'm a really poor speaker. Okay, do you, have you ever written an outline before? So what's the process? So that's where, to me, the prescription or the prescribing is really process-orientated. Like, what do you need to do? So, like, I like your idea of reverse engineering. Like, if you're going to stand up in three days, what would you tell yourself now? Mm-hmm. And it might be, make sure you're really well prepared. Make sure you enjoy it. Make sure you're not intimidated by the audience and obsessed with outcomes. So that would be an example of, then we'd monitor, so we'd go back and review. Prep, 
perform review, prep, perform, review. And then that review, we go, well, I'm still nervous about that. Okay, well, let's dig a little deeper here. Why are you so worried about people think of you? Because at the end of the day, yeah. Because they'll judge me. Well, and then yeah. what does that mean? So it's yeah. when you follow that thread. And look, and that it's a really simple framework, yeah. but even in that quick discussion then, assess where are you at now with your speaking? Well, I get nervous, I'm bad. Well, yeah. no, it's not that you're bad. You just haven't done the reps and sets yeah. and trained. Yeah prescribe, go and practice. And we you know, both talk in sport, reps and sets. I'm amazed how many people come to me and say, I've got this massive presentation coming up and I've done all the preparation in my PowerPoint and I've got all the data and figures and I go, oh, great. And they say, can I show you the PowerPoint slides? No. no. What? Talk to me the first minute. What's your opening sentence? Yeah. How are you going to control your nerves? How are you going to connect with the audience? Then show me your slides. So that's a really nice frame. Assess, prescribe, and monitor. That would work for any skill, whether any it's skill. speaking. Yeah. And like, I, all I do is this is needs analysis 101. If you're a strength and conditioning coach, if you're any sort of coach, like needs analysis is, and I think because it's so ancient, we've forgot about it. Like, I reckon businesses could be so much better if they did simple needs analysis at times. Like, We're too busy. Yeah. You don't you don't understand you sports guys. You know, we've got double-digit growth expectations. We've got a global market. We've got COVID. We're working from home. We've got agile workforces. We'll get to that, Aaron. Look, I know it's important, but we'll get to it. And you're wondering why you're not meeting those demands. And you're wondering why people are burning out and you're yeah. wondering why there's a talent shortage. wonder why shortage. you're underperforming. Yeah. Because you think that the immediacy is more important than the long term. So you and I, we, we could talk for hours. I think Wizard's going to have to put a time limit on this because we'll be in the studio for five hours. How do you get this across when you go and meet with a team? Because if you, you break down the differences, so just going back, you're saying in a game like rugby, yep. 60%, yep. 20%, yep. 10 or 20%? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Golf, what would much that percentage more, be? Much more, 40, 50%. So yeah. 40 or 50% mentor? Yeah. How many golfers do you know on the world circuit? How many professional footballers do you know that spend 20% on mental skills for football and 50% for golfers on mental skills? Yeah, I think I think probably in the football, much lesser, but probably in the golf, much higher, which is ironic, eh? You know, you think it's only a little bit of work to, to do some mental stuff if you're a rugby player. Surely we're doing that. Or if you're a golfer, it would feel like it's too much work. But it's almost like the ones that understand how important it is are the ones that are prepared to put in the work. And it's like anything, though, with the work you do, you've got to have tangible results. So like, I always remember, like when I'm working with a team, it's not a social club. If it's a place to belong and they need another guy in there to feel good, that's not for me. If it's a place where you need to perform and you need help actualizing that performance, then let's talk about it. That comes with confidence. Were you always like that? Nah, nah. I don't think so. I think I, think I always had a sense of, not being good enough, but I think that in some sense I use that as a driver until it run out. I often say to clients, a chip on the shoulder will get you going. Drive will keep you going. And I think I'd have a vision that's compelling rather than a person to prove wrong. Like what happens once you prove the person wrong? It's over, right? But if you have a compelling vision of who you're trying to be and what that looks like, it's irrelevant what people think. I can't help but do this when I'm working with an athlete or a coach, a CEO or a corporate. You're talking to them and then you get above the meta. In coaching psychology, we say the dance floor is it's in the practice. On the balcony is looking at the meta. What I love about a podcast is you can ask people questions you've always wanted to ask them. So for you, the 
chip on the shoulder. One thing I know, because you told me this openly, you've lost 70 kilograms. But that's half of you. What, what, what are you weighing in at 90, now? 90. 90, yeah. Talk me through that. I grew up in a family that loved food. I remember when I was younger, my grandfather died. You know, Nana, after she'd sort of sorted out the formalities, it's food. You know, it's food. We just, when we win, we eat. Irish Catholic family. Okay. And where did you grow up in New Zealand? In Hastings, yeah, in Hawke's Bay, which is sort of on the east coast of the North Island. So real, they call it the fruit bowl in New Zealand, but hugely agriculture. So agriculture, horticulture community. So like there was just abundance of food. And so I think I learned like if things were going great, you eat. Like, and, and, and it had poor health, but, you know, like it wasn't, didn't have that relationship with alcohol or anything. It was just, if I had a hard day, even now my temptation after a hard day is I love sport. Like the concept of sport and a bag of chips, oh, just glorious. Kick back on the couch. What's your favourite chips? Um, I go through phases. Yeah, I, so at the moment, probably burger rings, like gone back into burger rings. <laughs> I've been yeah. old I've school. burger rings yeah, since burger rings are glorious. <laughs> like burger rings are right. Where is it? Do you like burger rings? I love burger rings. Yeah, yeah see, so put them on your fingers and yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, if I'm going traditional, just a real good like salt and vinegar. Look at your frame now. So as an exercise physiologist, I'm really good at guessing the weight of the cow. You, know, you go to the, the local show at Hastings and they say, here's the bull, here's the cow, guess the weight. I can't imagine on your frame 170 kilos. That's, yeah. that's a big boy. Yeah. It was, that's a lot of food. It was burdensome. I think there was a, a point where, yes, the intri- like this going back to your thing, the, the, the extrinsic motivation wasn't powerful enough. Like, oh, you don't look good. Well, I know that. That's not going to drive me. But I think when I had children and when my wife got sick, I was like, okay, this isn't about appearance or aesthetics or about what people think. This is about you being able to be a really, really awesome dad Mm -hmm. and a really, really supportive husband for someone who's going to need it. And if you don't get yourself sorted, you won't be able to perform those roles, which are still the two most important roles I have in my life. Was it a slow drip to yeah. get to that? Yeah. Like, so I reckon probably over kilos. 10 years. Yeah, really? Like, it wasn't like I'd started off the original, which keto, and like that helped because anything helps when you, when you change your calories. So, and then I think once I got down to like 120, probably 110, 115, I started to understand what was happening and like as much as there is so much stuff when you're, you're an expert in this about nutrition – the basic thing of in versus out, once I understood that and I had a watch and I could see what I used and then I had a food diary, it was a numbers game. And I could do that. Does that make sense? Like I could do a numbers game. And it was, if I'm in a 500 deficit and if I do that for seven days, it's 3,500, it's one pound of weight. I can lose a pound of weight every week if I commit to this. Something I've noticed, you're here at the moment, the time of recording, we're hanging out for four days. And I said, look, I've got a circuit on a Monday morning with a bunch of corporates. This morning we caught up with two mutual mates, Paddy Farhart and Dave Misso. Dave Misson, so Misso and Paddy. Shout out to, to the boys. We walked around Centennial this morning. Yesterday you joined all my corporate buddies. And I looked and you're running a long wagon, you tie it like a dog with your tongue hanging out. You look like you were loving it. And you told me this. When you go from being 170 kilos and it's very difficult to move, when you go outside and you can do an activity – you just say, how good is this? Yeah, I mean, it's like if you couldn't walk up stairs without puffing and now I can run 5K, like this is barely comprehensible, isn't it? Mm-hmm. 
So when you're in it, even though it's a, you might have a crap run or the workout's not so great or it's just the pure gratitude of being able to do that far exceeds any potential. Like, I might not be good enough here. Like, who cares? Like, 10 years ago, I couldn't walk properly and I was morbidly obese and if I didn't change my life, I was going to die. What, what happened with your self-esteem? This is the exercise physiologist, nutritionist coming. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. have, have you spoken about this on a podcast? Probably not. Yeah, not to the level of like, if I'd be really honest, I think there's times I looked in the mirror and I hated, not just like, oh, you need to lose some weight, mate. Like you're in a fucking embarrassment or mm. what's wrong with you or, you know what I mean? Like, this is disgusting. And I think as much as we all try to, and you might have to edit this out, was like as much as we all try to talk about body image and body positivity, I think all of us feel where we're not where we're meant to be. There is a bit of shame with that, and we and like yes, there is body acceptance, which I'm really fully supportive of. But we also have this thing I think ticking inside of us, going, "You're not looking after yourself, and you're not healthy, and you know that, and you can pretend everything is fine, but you know that." And that's why the man in the mirror is so important to me as a concept is that everyone around me could have said oh you're just big boned and you know you have bad genetics all that true but I knew that was a lie and I knew that the reason was me and my inability to have control and if you don't have control over a really important area of your life I think you feel very disappointed with yourself well confidence capability breeds an upward spiral you get more skills you get better capability you have more confidence it grows up it's also a downward spiral, low self-esteem, poor skills, low self-esteem, stop moving. It, it can spiral yeah, down. I wouldn't be here today if I didn't lose the weight. And I'm not just talking about like a life. There's no way I'd be sitting in a room telling everyone about you know, how to think better and the work I do because I would feel such a fraud and such an imposter. Like You can't even control your own weight. And that's where I, where I think it probably hit me. How can you help other people? Well, my next question, how do you help other people when they know that? And let's get outside of mental skills. Let's talk about changing anything. Do you use that as a lever and say to someone, hey, I was 170 kilos? Sometimes, depending on, like, sometimes I think it's too emotional, like, as far as, like... I can see that this, like, this is... I've listened to a number of your podcasts. I've done your online programs. There's a waver in your voice now I've never heard. Yeah, because it's probably the most impactful thing that I have in my life apart from my wife getting sick is like when you change your life like that's a powerful thing to change your life isn't it like you watch people do it all the time like when you actually change it like not from okay my life got better I got a better job I now earn 12k more what about I was morbidly obese I was probably going to die and now I'm fit and I can go run and I can be with my children I can look after my wife like I can't, I, w- I never want to forget that part of it. And so, but I don't want to pull on that string from sympathy. I want to pull on it from empathy. You know why I've asked you this? Two reasons. I like having a question that people haven't been asked, but I'm curious. So when I see the iceberg and I see this guy who's got all of his shit together, you're doing mental skills around the world. I'm curious, what has driven that? And that, that, that I, I suddenly feel like I understand you a whole lot more. Because when I see how passionate you are talking about this, that's come a place from a place of real care, but from a place of not having your stuff together, not feeling like you're confident, not being able to look in the mirror. That was, but that must be bloody tough. I think I'm a case study of, and if if I can do it, anyone can. Mm-hmm. And I think that gives you authority in a subject. So my 
transformational journey, which was really a mindset thing as much as a physical thing, that is the biggest weapon I have in my toolbox. Mm. Because I can look at anyone and go, it's not that hard. Well, no, that's the wrong way of saying it. It's hard, but it's doable. You don't know. Oh, I think I know. Yes. But I won't promote that. But if someone goes, well, it's, there it's the too hard and it's, it's, I can't do this, I'm like, I reckon you can. Like, or how would you know? How do you relate? I was like, oh, let me tell you. Empathy allows you to live with the person where they're at, but challenge them to go further. And, I, and I'm not interested in putting my arm around someone and saying, just feel better about yourself. You need more self-esteem and you need more bo- body positivity or more emotional positivity. I'm like, where you are is where you are, mm. right? That's where you're at. And it's painful and I understand that and it's frustrating, but you can change and I'll help you. You've mentioned twice now about Christy, your, your lovely wife and her health challenges. I imagine you've had to draw on a lot of mental skills as the you know, leader of the family, as the rock in the family, and, and you said you were okay to talk about it. So um, you know, talk us through what's, what's happened yeah, It's probably the years. one thing that will make me cry, probably more than anything else, would be um, I just think the courage in her and her tenacity has just – probably shifted my whole perspective around life. Like mm. someone that would, we live in a beautiful place, Mount Mono, and she would climb the mountain 12 minutes and to not been able to walk, you know, unaided. And then watching her go through that journey and, and just being blown away, like completely blown away by just who she is. And I suppose for me, that's the most powerful demonstration of resilience I've ever seen. So when I talk to a player about being dropped and then working hard to get reselected, part of me goes, you have no idea. <laughs> like what's, what true resilience is, is when your life changes dramatically and you don't give up. And you more than not give up, you reframe it and find something meaningful. And I suppose, you know, like people ask me all the time, like, oh, your marriage must have suffered from such a terrible diagnosis. And I remember... I remember the neurologist telling us like, you know, 80% of men who get this diagnosis with their wives or their wives get, they leave. Really that high? Yeah. And that hit me like, I'm not going anywhere. So there was like a, an inward vow almost. And I don't think, I don't think you can have depth in your life without suffering. And I know that that's just my worldview. Like adversity creates insight. And we have so many people who, who avoid adversity or are really, really, and I'm not talking about overwhelming suffering here. I'm talking about like, if you can, if you can suffer and endure, and you know, there's a very, it's quite controversial psychologist out of Canada called Jordan Peterson. Yes, know and, Jordan well. Yeah, and, and I don't necessarily agree with everything Jordan said, but one thing I love is that he talks about young men got to find meaning in life because suffering is ever present. And also he has a concern that we've taken suffering away, that everything is so easy, drop and drag, we download everything. I'm sounding old, but when you and I were at school, we had the library, you'd had to wait for a book. So you were taught patience. You were taught that you can't get everything straight away. Now everything's at the click of your finger. It is. And that's where I think like for us, I mean, I know that that adversity and suffering has brought so much more closeness than we could have ever had. Now, do I wish it on anyone? No, 
but it is what it is. I didn't know this until you were talking to my partner, Tony, and I came in in a conversation. It's a credit to Tony because she's known you for five minutes and you're opening your heart and she's opening hers. Do you tell players this? Do the players know this? I think at some point they sort of discover it, you know, Mm. like because there'll be times where I can't get to things or, you know, like I don't often travel with the team because I want to be at home and just to be available. And so I think they sort of figure out like when I was with the Warriors, it's a bit different because she could, she's a bit more mobile and she could come to our games and the players got to, but like she can't come to games anymore. And so what's difficult, we're, we're trying to work on it. But so I think it's probably a part of my world that they get, but probably don't really understand. And I know maybe part of my professionalism is that it's the way it should be. Yeah. At some level, but. And, and yeah. obviously those two things that, that dramatic transformation in weight, but to have your partner diagnosed with MS and to see them lose mobility, to lose capacity, how do you how do you reframe that? Like how do you use every mental skill you've got? Because that, that must be bloody hard. I think I'm resilient. And I think my resilience is from the fact is I just have a real logical way of looking at life at times. Like I've got one option. I've got two options. Number one is just sit here and cry me a river about how difficult my life is and offer all these excuses about why I can't achieve what I need to. And very legitimate. Mm. Like if you're morbidly obese and then you have, you know, chronic disease in your family, you could say, well, you know, just lower your expectations and just cruise. Whereas I think I was like, well, I have no option here. I don't want to live mediocre, mediocre life. And I think going back to what you asked me before around why I'm so passionate about the subject is that I think probably as a as a rugby player and as an athlete, I always had the sense of I didn't convert my potential into performance. So what level did you get to in rugby? Just school rugby, but you know, like good level of school rugby. And but you know, when I was younger, you I was probably the kid at the rugby club where you go, that kid will be an All Black. You know, like I was just naturally a good young rugby player when I was six and seven, and like there are any kids, but you know those kids that just stick out. Mm-hmm. And I was one of those. And then as I got older, I couldn't, I don't know why. Like looking back now, it was probably pressure, but I didn't know what it was or how to manage it. And I think secondarily, like I look at all these young people and like how hard they work. And you know, you're in the NRL. Yeah, there's a stigma out there about professional athletes being prima donnas and all that. Like go spend the day with them, man. They work so damn hard mm-hmm. and they are so committed and and put their bodies oh, on They murder their bodies. Just the hits that they take. And you see the recovery. They don't just rock in the next day going, hey, you had a big game. Some of them drag their bodies. You know, I'm prepared to wreck my body for my teammates, for our, t- for our franchise or club. Like we don't, I don't think that's talked about enough, like in professional sports from the media and from the public. Like there is huge sacrifice. Yes, there is reward. Like, let's, but why do we always focus on the reward? There's reward for those that make it. There's a lot of, I think the average number of games in NRL is 30, I, I believe similar in rugby. There's a lot of men and now women that, that we've got a whole lot more focus, thank goodness, on, on a balance in the sport. But there's a lot of men and women who will play a handful of games who don't earn the big money, who don't get all the trappings that go with that, whose bodies are wrecked when they finish. You hear your, your, your pundits in the public saying, oh, they've never worked a full day in their life. I'm like, you don't even know what you're talking about. You could not spend an hour in that environment and survive so don't tell me about work ethic don't tell me they've never had a real job real job okay you come in at 6 30 and start your recovery 
okay, then we're going to put you in the hardest gym session you've ever done in your life for two hours. Then you're going to go and look at film for an hour and a half. Then you're going to go to a team meeting. Then you're going to train, and you're probably going to cover 6 to 7K, and a lot of that will be high-speed meters. And then you're going to go home and going to do it all again tomorrow. Give me a break. You'll be on the tools tomorrow again. Mm. You couldn't handle it. And on top of that, you throw in New Zealand, especially, it's a goldfish bowl. If you play rugby – Everyone knows who you are. You go to your local shop, you go to get bread, you go to the local, you know, go get a haircut. Everyone sees you. Everyone wants to talk to you. Yep. And like we've had the All Blacks haven't had their greatest year, but you know, hopefully they're turning it around. That's an understatement. I think you're yeah. number five or six. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which is like- <laughs> As an Aussie, like we love this. Yeah, it's We're historically you know, bad, but you know, our public is just out of control with it. You know, just stupid. So what, what are they saying? You know, like I know that when they were- on flights and stuff, there's people just chirping away and talking about, you know, you're not good enough, you're embarrassing. Like, I don't know if you guys probably didn't see it from far, but our coach, Ian Foster, just got destroyed well, in I the did media. I just see that, yeah. So you're like, you've got all of these. It's a high pressure, you know, but I think most of them understand. So, like, they would understand that this comes with the territory. Mm. We don't like it all the time, but we understand it. Why do you think... They are number five or number six at the moment because the All Blacks have been dominant for decades. What What's shifted in the last couple of years? I don't think it's one thing. I think it's a combination of things. Like I look at the other nations are amazing, eh? The way Ireland play now. And, Phenomenal. Yeah, and South yeah. Africa and, you know, even Argentina who yeah, we couldn't Michael even imagine. Checker and all of his yeah, Australian ten, coaching ten years staff, ago yeah. being even competitive – you know, they're now dangerous and France are going to be phenomenal at a home World Cup. I think what we all do when we think about the teams we love is we look at through the lens of their failings rather than the elevation of other people's performances. And So true. And I think we have to start with the elevation of other people's performances mm-hmm. and then recognising that, you know, you'd know this from a physiologist, like they're big. There's some big teams with some big play, and we're not they're as big not now. Big, they're massive. Yeah, we're, like if you put us up against like you know some of the four packs now, like we're just not as like the French are massive. You know, with rugby and rugby league, if you can't win the game physically, you won't win it. Mm. Like you've got to win the physical battle. And with analytics and technology, so like we in baseball and did a lot of work around the analytics stuff. And teams now are understanding a really good system will beat talent. And once you start, and I reckon it's a massive principle. So if I look at like, you know, the All Blacks historically have been really instinctive and play off the cuff and, you know, like they'd always say, don't turn the ball over, they'll destroy you because there's no, they can just play, They're good rugby players. But when you have a system that you trust in and you're not reliant on talent, then all of a sudden, under pressure, your system becomes your default. If you're talent-based, you become frantic under pressure. Are teams not as fearful of the All Blacks as they were? Because there's been this aura, right? And you'd see, I've watched a number of games here in Sydney, Wallabies versus the All Blacks, and when they come out on the field, from the moment they do the haka, there's this, there's an aura. I know Owen Eastwood, you know, they talk about fucker papa and just the, the Maori tradition that's been embedded into it. Is that being lost? Not not the tradition, but is, it, is that fear factor being lost? I think you have to ask the other countries. I mean, like, if you look at it logically, like, Ireland didn't beat us for 100 years and now have beaten us in three of the last five tests. So I don't think they're worried. I think the Aussies still are worried because they can't beat us. As much as we talk about our 
like we got worse and worse, the Blenslow Cup's still been out for 20 years. So it hasn't converted yet into, you know. So maybe with the uh, Wallabies there might be an aura, I don't know. But I know with some of these other teams, is evidence in some ways will always override history. So like if you have a historical feeling about something, but then you have evidence that you're better than that, you're away. And I think the Irish is the biggest example for me. I think they have evidence because confidence isn't something that you just bang up out of nowhere. Confidence is something you cr- you have to earn through actual evidence. So confidence, uh, my definition is do the work and then back yourself. So like if I if I think about like a confidence, we're going back to a little bit of a confidence model. If I see players are, are not confident, then I would say I just call it act. Okay, so assess where you're at, commit to your plan, trust your skill set. And that's why I probably, in that whole mental skills sort of psychology world, I could never, I suppose, buy into the whole reality of, you know, the NLP and the talking. Like I understood what people were saying, trying to change your inner language, but your brain's too smart. Your brain doesn't give you confidence because you've said things. You, you get confidence because you've done things. Because you've got evidence, yeah. You've done it's Confidence is an evidence-based. If you can, you can. Come yeah. with bad thoughts out, good yeah. thoughts yeah. in. Yeah, like, and that's like, I'm going to look in the mirror a hundred times and say I'm going to be the best golfer in the world. My brain will go, until you're on the range, five or six hours a day and doing the work, you haven't earned the right to feel confident yet. And, and link with this, you've said the P word a number of times, so I want to come back to that. Talk to me about pressure. Because uh, in the corporate world especially, we often hear people minimize stress. I, I hear this a lot at the moment whilst you now that we're back into hybrid and companies will have three different environments. They'll have the home, working from home, they'll have the office, and then they'll have a hub sometimes in between. And it's hard because people are, are changing their brain pathways. Like, am I at work? Am I at home? Do I wear pants? Uh, and then pressure's bad. I often hear, take pressure away. I'm like, no, 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 pressure. Like coming from a sporting background as an athlete, then at physical conditioning, and now like you doing mental skills, pressure's your friend. Give us your definition of pressure. I think it's mostly a physiological response to potential failure. <laughs> That's how I feel. Physiological response to potential failure. Yeah, because I think you feel pressure. You feel pressure. I don't think you have a concept of pressure. So, like, if if I if we were to do a like a public speaking exercise for someone uncomfortable, yeah, they might have muddled thoughts and find hard to get clear. But what they're mostly experiencing is that why are my palms so sweaty? Why is my heart beat? Why is my voice sounding like? Yeah, yeah. Why 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 is all that happening? And I think it goes back to, you know, my mate Owen Eastwood's work on belonging. I think the pressure has its origin. Gosh, in. I wish I'd written that book. Yeah. Owen will send this to I you, know, the link. I know. We are envious. Um, just it's a reference the whole point for so story. many things. It's beautiful. So as far as it relates to pressure, I think I think when we have a sense that failure could end in rejection, which is a lack of belonging and we need to belong to survive, then the stakes are elevated because we're ta- tapping into that ancient worry that we will be alone. I think isolation, we don't talk about enough like social and physical isolation as a real driver of fear is massive. Or well, COVID showed that. Yeah, if we get it wrong, we get rejected. If we get rejected, we get isolated. If we get isolated, we die. That's, that's the history of humanity. Isolation equals death. So... Anything that has the potential to isolate you from a people that are meaningful to you 
will create pressure. So whether that's if you miss this kick, you no longer get selected. If you stuff up this presentation, you no, no longer will be part of this team. You know, if you let down your kids, you won't be a good parent. Like whatever it is, if your kids don't perform well at school, then, you know, your family isn't well represented. So, and I agree with what you said at the start is like one of our biggest problems with our young people today by far is the idea that well-being is insulating them from pressure rather than well-being is helping them overcome pressure. Because you know from a neurological sense, one of the biggest releases of dopamine is overcoming difficult things. Absolutely. It's one of our greatest enhancers of well-being. So why would we remove hardship out of our well-being model? Any workshop I've done, any corporate program, any of the media, if you ever ask people, what are you most proud of? It's not the easy stuff. No, it's hardship. Yeah. It's hard because there is a there is a line, like with mental health, like there's a line between experiencing and navigating through and growing from pressure and being overwhelmed and devastated by pressure. And, and just in the way you've explained that, more physiological, yeah. when you're working with a high performer yeah. of any domain, yeah. do you teach them first of all about the stress response, oh, what happens, so they, they understand that? Yeah. yeah. Well, the first thing I'll try and do is just to help them understand that feeling pressure is normal. So you're response is more physiological rather than psychological? I think so, yeah. It's, I think it's a combo. So like we have psychological pathways that elicit a physiological response because at the end we understand that we're under threat. You understand there was some projection in that question of mine because yeah. I've wrestled with this coming from an ex-phys background, landing in mental skills, yeah. studied psychology with a master's but I'm not a psychologist. Yeah. I struggled initially. Like, yeah. Can I move into the domain of mental skills without being a psychologist? But I agree totally. So oh, that was the projection mate. that mental skills is a combination of physical yeah. intelligence as well as that psychological intelligence. And it's the dance between the two. It's not just yeah. compartmentalizing. Here's your body or your head on a stick. Yeah. It's it's that intersection of the two. And and the the intersection where it marries is neuroscience. <laughs> That's the intersection. Mm. We've so, got the exercise physiologist yeah. and PTs talking to the psychologist and yeah. saying, you're actually trying to do the same thing. 100%. Get over yourselves, yeah. work together. So neuroscience tells us that under stress, if you have too much cortisol in your system, your physiological function decreases. Yeah, and you get that shut down and you get very myopic in your view. Yeah, and so we know that. We know that if you put a, you know, there's been lots of good studies done with golf. You can put a golfer into a, a really, really controlled environment where there's no people in, in, a, in a simulator put all those biomechanic sensors on them and their swing's perfect. Put those same sensors on them, put them in front of people on the first tee and their movement sucks. They're like, oh, I couldn't handle pressure. It's like, yes, but what you understand, your, your golf swing changed. It changed because of your inability to manage what was happening within your body. Well, let's, let's roll that yeah. naturally into yeah. part four in my rough planned spontaneity frame at the start today. How do you work with a high performer who's not an athlete? So it could be a singer. I'm working with a few performers, artists, other people. How would you work with a corporate worker around adapting mental skills to help them be a better insert what they are at work, but also insert your roles in your personal life as well. And I want, it's a great question, but I think as a performance coach, which you are as well, it's not always mental skills. And that's where I love the work that you guys do do, because like if I have a CEO who's got no energy and is 145 kgs and drinks beers five nights a week, I'm not going to start on his mental skills. I haven't told you this. I'm working with a boxer at the moment who's got a big fight in January next year. 
And when I sat down with him, the brief was to do some work on mental skills. And I said, look, I'm not going there. That's part two. Part one is where do you abuse, or not where do you abuse, where do you lose and how do you restore energy? And when I say that to people, they initially look at me, huh? Like, no, no, what do you do that energizes you? What drains away? And let's focus on that. And with his example, he rang me last week. He said, I get it. Can can we now do some mental skills? Like, ah, because the earlier part of me would have wanted to talk about pre-performance routines and what do you do when you come in the ring and what's confidence and it's important the higher order but unless you can manage energy and regulate that don't go to the fancy stuff so i think i think i might have shared this with you in the past but i have a, a hierarchy around mental skills which the foundation is manage yourself second layer is manage your mindset and then the third layer is manage yourself under pressure Ooh, i like that so manage yourself manage your mindset manage pressure so where do you start? You don't start with managing pressure. You start with managing yourself. Then your mindset is how you see yourself and how you see the world, right? That's Michael Gervais' simple definition. Then if you're managing mindset, you're gonna manage your self-esteem and then you gotta manage your perception. So like, I just explain it real simply. Is the world a place of threat where failure occurs? Or is the world a place of opportunity where your strength can be displayed to make impact? So that sh- mindset shift changes everything. So you ask people that question yeah, and then 100%. you see whether they're fear-focused yeah. or opportunity-focused? Yeah. yeah, threat, opportunity, yeah. Okay. And, you and do then that we go your, to the pressure stuff if needed. And but, you do that with your players as well? Yes. But I would find like if you've got someone who knows how to manage their self and they have the right mindset, the actual stuff in the performance space is limited. They've done all the, the big mm. stuff. But if you just think that oh, someone's life's a mess but I'm going to teach you how to breathe when you get a presentation, hitting the wrong stuff. Yeah. We are so aligned on that because um, – well, I think I think it comes from a physiology background from yeah. myself. Get the physicality right, or get get the movement. And maybe that's because right. of my journey. I've now arrived at that place. Like I had to sort my body out so I could function. Have you just thought of that then, or has that been something you've mentioned before? I just thought of it then. I think yeah. I think it's just something like okay. Well, this why am I so focused on fundamentals? Because mm-hmm. I gather I understood that I was hopeless without having a manageable body, managing my schedule, managing my relationships, managing my time, managing my energy. If I couldn't do that, that was the most biggest return for my buck, right? So we think about all these people that want hacks. There is no hack. The hack do is you want to ma- really piss manage me yourself. Off when I hear someone say, and it's normally with American accent, here's a five-minute hack that's going to make you, I go, well, here's a hack to be world-class yeah. at anything. Go work your backside off. Yeah. Do your course. Do your degree. Do 10 years on the job. Do your sport, do the undergrad stuff, then come through pathways, then professional. 15, 20 years, you'll become a, a, an overnight success. And yeah. then we talk about hacks. Oh, I just. Uh, it goes like Warren Buffett had this fantastic thing where he had put in an envelope. He said, In this envelope is something that will make you millions of dollars. Um, who wants to buy it? And I think they auctioned it off for 20000 to a charity. And the guy opened it, and on the, in the, uh, the note was, Make a list of what you need to do that day and do it. For 20000 That was the advice. <laughs> said, That'll make you a millionaire. Did they ever go back and close the loop on that? I person? don't know, but I th- it was what I love was just the simplicity. Mm. Like we're thinking about all these hyper hacks and that I treat the system and I'm, I'm not opposed to it like ice bath. Da, da. What about have a schedule, have a list of priorities, understand what's important and deliver on them. Start there. And I can't help but think the threads through our conversation. You, you know I love the book by David Epstein, Range. Yeah. So your range growing up in country New Zealand, there's a lot of stuff we could talk. That's another 
podcast another day. I had in country New South Wales, what will they think of me? Yeah. You know, when you're performing on the big stage or with big athletes, don't be a big head, yeah. pull your head in out. Another bigger conversation. But then getting into baseball, putting the weight on, going through that, you learn so much about esteem, self-esteem, shame. Yeah, identity, all of it. That yeah. became – and I think that's probably why my work helps people. It's why you have real meaning about it. It's not just tick the box tactile. But on top of that, I'll just keep going because this is about you. Then the work you did with Christy and the support on that and just I could just feel – I wanted to give you a big hug. That's a pakea. Yeah, is that yeah. right? Pakea? Yeah, yeah. You're part Maori? Yeah, yeah. Um, is that pronunciation right? Yeah, pakea. Pakea, yeah. I'll give you a hug at the end. I, I won't interrupt the flow. You've studied. Yeah. What have you studied? I studied uh, sport and recreation and science, yeah. Okay, and you're yeah. studying now? Uh, I've just putting a paper in, actually, so I'm actually doing a bit of research that's being submitted now for consideration on the paper I'm doing with a professor down in Otago on the integration of mental skills into elite sporting teams. Love it. Can't wait yeah. to see it. It'll be, yeah, it should be. A, there's not much work done on it. I'm really excited about that. You're working with one of the premier teams in rugby now. You work with the... Warriors in the NRL when they were struggling. You've worked with some athletes who've been at the top. You've worked with some athletes that were really trying to pull it together. What I'm getting at is you've had massive range. Yeah, probably have. Yeah. That. yeah. That's positioned you now to draw from your toolkit, part science and a lot of personal growth and learning along the way. I think um, Warren Gatlin, who I get to work with at the Chiefs, said something last year that really, really struck me. And it's not the right language, but you understand the concept. It was like we were asking around mental skills, what do you think the the most we have to cultivate? And it's not a mental skill directly, but he said, how do we help experience? Mm -hmm. And I think experience, like building your database of experience, and I think I've had a lot of experiences. And so when someone comes to me and asks me something, I just go to those files, not just intellectual files, but they're living files. So. I remember when, or, and that's why I think I'm a bit of a storyteller because that's where my database lies. So I can tap into those stories and those experience and then help others maybe move forward. For others listening to this who want to move forward on their own journey on mental skills, what would you say? How, how would you advise someone to go on a pathway to learn more about the way they – because really mental skills – I think is having understanding, not of your brain, but cognition and feelings and behaviours and the whole big yeah, stuff. I think there's two aspects. There's self-awareness, which I think is great but overrated because self-awareness doesn't change you. Okay. Regulating your behaviour changes you. So self-awareness is knowing yeah. what to do? Yeah, self-awareness is knowing doing. what your tendencies are. Regulation is I can change my behaviour. But without awareness. Yeah, you've got to have awareness first, but it, well, I know a lot of people have awareness don't change anything. Yeah, true. Well, the, yeah. the worst client I can work with, <laughs> yeah. and I openly say yeah. this, is someone who's highly intelligent, yeah. knows all the stuff I talk Just about, don't do it. but they don't do it. No. And so I think when you have experience, you're able to go, okay, if I've been through this journey, I can help someone else through it. Mm -hmm. And I think, you know, like in our profession, we have so many people that are way more intelligent than us who have done masters and doctorates and papers and, and they are awesome and I like I've got so many of them I respect so deeply like the guy I'm working with from o Otago University's Copus Deploy it's just is so smart like so stinking smart it's almost embarrassing like when I submitted my paper for him to review it came back like full of red marks and I was like I had no idea but my point is 
is that all of these guys, at the end of the day, what allows you to translate your knowledge into tools and into support, into practice, is experience. So if you're not in the dirt, how are you growing in your understanding of application? But are you just in the dirt? I think I know the answer to this, but I'm going to ask it. Are you just in the dirt or are you also thinking about, because I know you, I've borrowed a Walshism. At least one night a week I go for a walk. You told me this. And I'll take my phone, not to listen to anything. Sometimes if my head's racing, it's a podcast, but just to walk and reflect. So do you consciously use that? I think I, I don't know why. Maybe, you know, if there's an awesome, you know, anal- psychoanalyst here or psychologist, they might help me. But I've always, I'm almost perpetually reviewing and learning. I just don't, I don't know, like if I, like I'll walk out of this and I will think in my walk back to the hotel of three things that I've learned and three things that I'll write about and apply from this conversation. Do you write that down? Yeah, yeah, I'll write when I get home. Like I love yeah. to write. Is, I write is it everything. a journal or is it? A- just get on my laptop and I have it under notes. You know, I share quite a bit of stuff online and people are like, how do you have all this IP? I'm like, you haven't even seen half of it. Yeah. Because for years, for years, not just the like, so when I go out for my walk, half of it's my voice memo. Think about this while she like, have, like and I think about something that happened that day, like with a player, and then I'll, then I'll process that. Yeah. And like, what would I do differently? Or what did I learn from that? Is there a principle that that can help others? Okay, this is for my learning. We spent yesterday together. End of the day, your eyes were glazed over. It was a big day. It pushed you into lots of different things. What were your learnings yesterday? That you've got to have structure, more structure to create effectiveness. So like, I think I'm still a little too casual with the way I approach some of my work. Not casual as in I don't take it seriously, but I, I think yesterday I got exposed to a layer of excellence that could elevate the work I was doing by simple things like, and even like on a real practical thing, I got to figure out how to use technology because if you don't have technology, you're going, it's not going to work. Get a wizard. Yeah, I know, I know. You're the in wi- your forties. The wizards. Yeah, yeah you're in your forties. I know. Um, yeah. We're not. We didn't grow so up. Shout out to anyone who wants to help me. When the technology yeah. train took off, we yeah. were on the wrong platform, yeah. champ. So yeah. get a yeah. wizard. Yeah, pirate. I, yeah, I can see something like, and then I think also, like just professionalism. So, like it's almost embarrassing. Like when you laugh, I laugh when I think about it, like. I just run these webinars from my lounge and heaps of people from all around the world jump on them. I've seen them. But they're so unprofessional and they're so like lame. <laughs> no, look, I'm not laughing yeah. at you. I'm laughing There's, with you. Your content's awesome, yeah. but maybe, I don't know, yeah. be interesting. If yeah. well, we, We're going to change it, definitely. You've got to be you, yeah. but I, I think when you amplify your brand, and that's a yeah. wanky word, when you, when you create a look yeah. that's a little bit, bigger than where you are you attract a different market and it probably helps like people who observe the work i do and who want to help genuinely which i appreciate once they know the story they'll understand why this thing around self-promotion and building a big name is not in my powerhouse like i'm not i'm not that's not what i'm here for like i really am here because of people and i think that's probably the most important thing is to help people succeed people ask me like what do you do and I, the best definition i found i'm a sherpa and that's my best definition of my work so if you're a sherpa your goal is to get someone up there everest right that's your goal and along the way you got to do three things really well you got to give them knowledge so sometimes it might be don't go up the kumo ice fall today it's dangerous it's too hot 
we're going to stay at base camp, but tomorrow we're going to do it. And by the way, when we go, you got to pack these tools. You got your tools, right? So you got your knowledge, your tools. You got your crampons. You've got your ice axe. And then I think the final thing is the most important thing is support. You've just got to camp one. It's overwhelming how high Everest is. Sometimes you just need someone to put an arm around you and say, right, mate, it's a long way to go, but here's our next step, and let's keep going together. Rewind. When you started telling me the Sherpa story, the emotion hit you. What were you thinking? I was just thinking about helping people. I don't know why. That's just That gets me emotional is that somehow you could play a part in someone's journey of being successful. It's, like, it's always been in me like – but like, I can't even watch those stupid shows like Americans Got Talent or whatever because to see someone shine, and especially when they've been through adversity, I just break down like a so, baby. So do I. My, my. Yeah, I can't even watch it because I just feel so emotional about the fact that here's someone, might not need to be someone who hasn't been believed in or someone who's struggled with their own confidence or didn't think they were good enough. And when they have these moments of breakthrough, I don't know, for me, that's so meaningful. I can remember watching the Flintstones movie with an ex-girlfriend and uh, Barney got sacked because he took the rap from yeah. Fred and Mr. Slate sacked yeah. him by crying. Oh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's just yeah. It's the Flintstones movie. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. A mate of mine in Hobart that I, I grew up running with, Mick Raymond, like, have you seen Rudy about Rudy yeah, Rudiger? Yeah, of course. Oh, tearjerker, yeah. huh? Yeah, I can't even. Like, that stuff is just, I'll just turn it off. It's just too much. And, you know, I think it's that whole idea of when you've overcome challenges, there's actually more joy and not in the challenges that you overcome, but watching others overcome theirs. Mm. And so to me, that's still like as a Sherpa, like, and I think I'm 46 now. So I'm like, I've climbed my mountains. Like I've done some of my Everest, which is where I am today. So I don't need to, I don't need to be the guy. I don't need to be a, the um, head of the expedition. I don't need to be up there at the top of the mountain telling everybody how cool it is. It's like, shit, but if in some way I can get beside someone who needs a little bit of encouragement and some skills and some knowledge to get where they need to get to, and you don't even have to be referenced, that's not the point. It's just that you help someone in their journey. I think that's so rewarding, which is probably the ethos of my work. I think you're in the right job. Yeah, yeah. Let's change channels. Okay. We do something with our high performers called the Performance Intelligence Baker's Dozen. Uh, I didn't tell you about this because it's best to get it natural. I'm going to throw 13 questions at you. First question that comes to mind, hit me with it. Aaron Walsh, your performance intelligence baker's dozen starts now. Question number one, your favourite song? Release me, Pearl Jam. Number two, your favourite movie? I really, it's probably, it's probably one that I didn't really want to admit, but I absolutely have loved over the years the Shawshank Redemption. I know everyone says that, but I just think it's a fantastic movie. I thought you were going to say Annie. No. Like <laughs> Number three, your favourite book? Uh, Atomic Habits, James Clear. James Clear. Yeah, I just, that gave structure for growth that I thought was outstanding. And Belonging, I put, oh, not just because my mate, I think Belonging is an amazing book. James Clear has sold six million copies. He's doing well. Uh, four, your favourite possession? My, fa- my wife and my family, yeah, by far, yeah. And outside that, my golf clubs. Five, your favourite food? Oh, mince and cheese pie. Mince and cheese pie. Oh, yeah, I was thinking cheese such, pie. You're such a Kiwi bogan. Yeah. Six, what time do you wake up and go to bed each day? Um, so go to bed any time between 10.30 and 11, get up any time between 5.30 and 6. Seven, do you have a morning routine? Not really. Which is going to – everyone will think that's crazy, but I'm quite flexible, yeah. Like it will involve exercise, 
So I suppose, yeah, I suppose like at seven o'clock, I always go to the gym. Yeah, well, that's question number eight. What is your weekly fitness schedule? I've just started because I I find that I operate better in groups than alone. So I do a little thing called BFT, which is sort of in a, it's a new gym that's an adaption of F45, but a bit more structured around like there's strength sessions, there's flexibility sessions. So I do that each morning at seven o'clock with one of my mates. Okay. Question number nine, your favorite productivity tip? Remove distraction. So like if I need to work, I don't stay at home. I'll go to a coffee shop or somewhere. Where, and people go, oh, is coffee shop more distracting? No, because there's no Sky Television at the coffee. There's no sports. That's my problem. Like, there's plenty of other options that I like rather than working some days. Question 10, your most vivid childhood memory? I'll probably sell it at rugby club with my family. Yeah, like we were members of the sell it at rugby club and granddad was the president. And just every Saturday night, if you remember those days, I used to go there with dad. I used to tell the old boys how many tries I scored and they'd give me money. And it was absolutely filled to the girls with cigarette smoke. And I don't know how we all didn't get sick and, you know, <laughs> that was just the way it rolled. It was yellow ceilings and heaps of beer, and but fun. And that was my place of belonging, I suppose, as a kid was a rugby club. Yeah. 11, biggest adversity you faced? Probably touched them, eh? Like, like probably the one I didn't add was my dad had a massive stroke six years ago and that was incredibly difficult. So, yeah, he's he's better, but he's still not in great nick, yeah. Question 12, what achievements in your life are you most proud of? Yeah, I think like I don't want to go down the regulation one of I'm proud of my family and all of that because I think that's a given. But I think um, overcoming difficulty, mm. yeah, like just overcoming things that were hard and that, you know, maybe should have wiped me out and made me irrelevant and just understanding that you know it's a James Clear small things done every day make a tremendous difference question 13 what is your definition of high performance uh, capability minus interference yeah that's one I just think I don't know I'm biased because it's my definition but it's probably not mine probably someone else has thought of it before me but to me that's the that's the biggest one like because it sums up everything about performance which mm. is the dance between increasing someone's capability and reducing interference. We've spoken about a lot today. Yeah. You've been so candid. You've been so open. I've only got two questions left. Number one, put your hands up on the crystal ball. Yep. What does five years look like from now? What are you doing in the world of mental skills? I think the thing that most enjoy is, is, is probably changing the face of mental skills and raising the water level. I know that sounds quite bold, but I, but I think mental skills has been so misunderstood, misapplied and misinterpreted. And so my idea was if we can normalise it, which I think we've got to, the value of it, we've got that now. The next great challenge or frontier for the mental performance world is integrating it. And that's my, that's my gig. I love getting alongside teams and going, how do we integrate this? So love it. wherever I'm doing that around the world would be awesome. I've asked you a lot of questions. We've spoken about a lot of different things. Is there a question that I haven't asked you that you'd like me to ask? Or there's a flip. Is there a question you want to ask me? Yeah, I think probably the question very relates to my own journey was that you had adversity. It could have really taken you out because of your ego and my ego. Mm. What did you learn from that? So my adversity, and we've spoken about yeah having cancer when Michaela was born, so having melanoma, being treated for that. I, I don't remember the first two or three months of her life, and I've got generally good memory recall. Oh, that just taught me that every day is a blessing. 
and my massage therapist in Hobart, a wonderful man named Bruce Eaton, was diagnosed with a melanoma two days after me on the opposite shoulder. His was half the size of mine. Bruce died in October of 2009. And I think about that regularly. So if I'm going through tough times, you know, COVID, for example, we lost 93% of revenue. Yeah, you feel shit. You've lost money. I thought, whiz, we had some pretty dark meetings and discussions, didn't we? We thought we weren't going to get through, but I'm alive. Yeah, so that's a that's something I draw on all the time. And the other one was going through a marriage breakdown. It's the similarities, you know, we, we're different people, but there's some similar frameworks. I also come from an Irish Catholic background. My grandfather, Patrick Flynn, had three people in the cloth of his family. So it was- Jeez, and my grandfather, Barney Walsh, had four. There you go. Same thing. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, I had a Carmelite nun. I think you had a few yeah, Carmelites yeah, yeah. as well, yeah. who chose the vocation was to not even speak. And reframing that, I thought I was a failure, a marriage failure, disappointment to my family, kids. That was hard. But yeah, getting through that, like you said, I think those two things in life in general gives you empathy and understanding. So if someone says to me, oh, so what have you had to do? And I've had that a few times. I've had more corporates. Athletes don't ask this. They're a bit more respectful. But I think some corporates will go, all right, if you're going to work with me, show us what you've got. Authentically, I tell people some of my stories. They go, oh, shit. Okay, yeah, you get me. So final little thing around that is why are we then so scared of – or why do we want to protect everyone from pain and suffering and failure? I don't now. Yeah. yeah. As a father of four, yeah. two things, Walshy. One is I go to work to get a break. Yeah. Not a joke. Yeah, of course. <laughs> yeah. Love them. Love them. Yeah, I get it. <laughs> two, yeah. with my kids, and I think first principles, you ask anyone who's got kids in their family or extended family, what principles do you want to instill upon your children. I want my kids to understand that struggle is part of life. Uh, I, I, I worry at times because my kids have a very different upbringing than I did. We didn't have a lot of money. That made me. Yeah. So I appreciate stuff now. I don't know if I'm doing the right thing, but I, I want my kids to fall down sometimes and I'll help them up, but I think it's actually part of growing and learning. Now, for people who want to connect with you, listen to you, what's the best way for people to connect with you? Just find me on LinkedIn, yeah. We discussed the I don't have a website. Um, We're going to work on that. That's this afternoon. That. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but, you know, LinkedIn, and I've, you know, I have a personal philosophy that you should share your IP and share your knowledge. Because one, it's better for everyone else, and two, it forces you to grow. Well, thank you for sharing your knowledge today. Yeah, yeah. Come here. Yeah. Oh, Hi again, it's Andrew, and I hope you really enjoyed that episode. We would appreciate if you helped to amplify the Performance Intelligence podcast by sharing episodes with your friends and with your colleagues by going to iTunes and leaving a rating and review. This really does help get the message out to a wider audience, and I love reading the comments as well. If you'd like to know more about booking me as a speaker at your next annual conference or company offsite, or purchasing one of the books I've written, including MatchFit, or if you'd just like to receive my monthly e-newsletter, which is called the AM edition, that has stacks of information specific to all things human performance, go to andrewmay.com and we'll see you on the next edition of Performance Intelligence. Performance Intelligence.